to take a seat and grab a Bible, and Izzy is going to come to read to us. Thanks, James. The reading is 2 Samuel, and cha- sorry, is 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 8, to chapter 3, verse 5, and can be found on page 305 in the Red Bibles. We have Bibles in other languages and versions available at the back, and the page numbers for those are available on the screen. So that's page 305 in the Red Bibles. Meanwhile, Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. He made him king over Gilead, Asherai, and Jezreel, and also over Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, son of Saul, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he reigned two years. The tribe of Judah, however, remained loyal to David. The length of time David was king in Hebron over Judah was seven years and six months. Abner, son of Ner, together with the men of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, left Mahanaim and went to Gibeon. Joab, son of Zeruiah, and David's men went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. One group sat down on one side of the pool and one group on the other side. Then Abner said to Joab, let's have some of the young men get up and fight hand to hand in front of us. All right, let them do it, Joab said. So they stood up and were counted. Twelve men for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and twelve for David. Then each man grabbed his opponent by the head and thrust his dagger into his opponent's side, and they fell down together. So that place in Gibeon was called Helkahah Hazarim. The battle that day was very fierce, and Abner and the Israelites were defeated by David's men. The three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abshai, and Ashael. Now Ashael was as fleet-footed as a wild gazelle. He chased Abner, turning neither to the right nor to the left as he pursued him. Abner looked behind him and asked, Is that that you, Ashal? It is, he answered. Then Abner said to him, Turn aside to the right or to the left. Take on one of the young men and strip him of his weapons. But Ashal would not stop chasing him. Again, Abner warned Ashal, Stop chasing me. Why should I strike you down? How could I look your brother Joab in the face? But Ashal refused to give up the pursuit. So Abner thrust the butt of his spear into Ashal's stomach, and the spear came out through his back. He fell there and died on the spot. And every man stopped when he came to the place where Ashal had fallen and died. But Joab and Abshai pursued Abner, and as the sun was setting, they came to the hill of Amma near Gaia, on the way to the wasteland of Gibeon. Then the men of Benjamin rallied behind Abner. They formed themselves into a group and took their stand on top of a hill. Abner called out to Jab, Must the sword devour forever? Don't you realize that this will end in bitterness? 
How long before you order your men to stop pursuing their fellow Israelites? Joab answered, As surely as God lives, if you had not spoken, the men would have continued pursuing them till morning. So Joab blew the trumpets, and all the troops came to a halt. They no longer pursued Israel, nor did they fight any more. All that night, Abner and his men marched through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, continued through the morning hours, and came to Mahanaim. Then Joab stopped pursuing Abner and assembled the whole army. Besides Ashal, 19 of David's men were found missing. But David's men had killed 360 Benjaminites who were with Abner. They took Ashal and buried him in his father's tomb at Bethlehem. Then Joab and his men marched all night and arrived at Hebron at daybreak, by daybreak. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon, the son of Ahinoam of Jezreel. His second, Kelab, the son of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. The third, Absalom, the son of Maka, daughter of Talamai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, and the, the son of Haggah. The fifth, Shephijah, the son of Abital. The sixth, Ephraim, the son of David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much for reading. It's nice to see you all. Uh, for those of you I don't know, I'm Pete Gaskell, one of the uh, assistant curates here at Platt. Uh, let's pray as we look at that passage together. Uh, Father, we do ask that as we look at your words here in 2 Samuel, by your spirit you would speak and speak to us of the Lord Jesus that we would love him more, cherish him more, trust him more, and live for him more. If we ask it in his name. Amen. Human politics, as we know, often, particularly this week, is often messy. Uh, one dictionary defines politics as follows. The use of underhand and unscrupulous methods of obtaining power or advancement within an organizational society. Why should politics have such a bad, bad name? Because surely, you know, formulating and then implementing policies is for the good of a society. And indeed, the Bible teaches us, does it not, to respect those in authority. Romans 13, for example, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. And that is because God has put the authorities in place for our good. And uh, we shouldn't therefore badmouth our leaders. Rather, we're told uh, to pray for them, uh, to thank God for them, 1 Timothy 2, and honor them, 1 Peter 2 says that. And the widespread uh, cynicism today about politics and politicians is not a good thing. 
But it is an understandable thing. It's not a good thing, but it's an understandable thing. The problem is that power um, in the hands of human beings is never completely wise and good. Just as we personally, individually, mess up our lives in various ways and hurt people from time to time, so those who have power in a society are never entirely pure in their motives, nor wholly wise in their thinking, or thoroughly good in their actions. Even at its very best, uh, political activity falls short of our hopes. We can dream of a better Britain, of a better Europe, dare I say, of a better world. But the dreams never match the reality. We are simply not good enough or wise enough or powerful enough to achieve what we would ideally want. And if we put our trust in politics, then we will be disappointed. Our only, our only realistic and ultimate hope is the kingdom of God. And the Bible's message is that God has promised a king, a king who will be wise and righteous, a just judge who will rule with righteousness and faithfulness. And he will succeed. He will bring this perfect and complete peace that we all want. Not just to one island, not just to one Europe, not just to the whole human race, but to all of God's creation. Staggering. And the most staggering thing of all is it's not a dream. It's reality. And that king has already come and has begun to reign. King Jesus is calling everyone, everywhere, to come into this kingdom by changing the direction of their lives, putting a vote of confidence in him, and trusting him. Far greater than any prime minister. And this king will one day return in all his heavenly glory and bring in this wonderful kingdom, the world we all want. He'll bring it to fruition. And these books of 1 and 2 Samuel introduce us to this theme of kingship. And particularly of King David. David is one of the most important figures of human history ever since he reigned all those years ago in roughly 1000 BC. And as we read the accounts of him, we are reading a shadow of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the word the book of Hebrews in the New Testament uses to describe the Old Testament. Shadow. A shadow. 
We see in the Old Testament shadows of Jesus. You know how it is with a shadow. You look at the shadow and you can sort of see beyond it to the reality. So just look at these shadows. Uh, can you work out who they are, the four of them? In fact, why don't you just turn to your neighbor, just discuss who you think those four people are. Absolutely, they are all Steve James. You're absolutely right. Um, There we go. Now, when you look at the Old Testament, you're looking at a shadow. It's just an outline, and beyond it, it's pointing to the reality that is Jesus Christ. The whole Old Testament points to him. It's all a shadow of him. It helps us understand him all the more. Uh, The Old Testament gives us a deeper and fuller and richer understanding of our Savior, And if we feel, if you feel that our love for Jesus is stagnating, then it's often a really helpful thing to do is to read our Old Testaments again. Uh, For the Old Testament shows us afresh who he is and all that he has done. And no no less so in this section we're looking at tonight, we're going to whiz through this amazing story, true story of history. Uh, We're going to see the king, the opposition, the skirmish, the battle, the truce, and the hope. So firstly, the king. Just summarizing what Paul, in fact, did for us last week, verses 1 to 7. Chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, King Saul is dead. Chapter 2, King David is anointed to replace him, 2 verse 4. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah. Notice there, he's just at this point king over, over Judah. And notice the sort of king that he is. Look to his attitude towards his enemies. Um, Verses 5 and 6, David said, The Lord bless you for showing this kindness to Saul, your master, by bearing him. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness, and I too will show you the same favor because you have done this. This is a king full of grace and love and kindness, just as Jesus was full of grace and love and kindness. Secondly, the opposition, verses 8 to 11. Verse 8 starts, meanwhile, or, or it could be but. But Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. He made him king over Gilead, Ashuri, and Jezreel, and also over Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. Do you see here, not everyone would acknowledge God's king as being David. It all happens, we're told, verse 8, at Mahanaim, which means in the Hebrew, two camps. There were two sides. There was not unity, in other words, at this point in, in the reign of David. And I have no idea if it was a 48, 52% split or what, but there were two camps with Abner as the leader of the opposition. Abner must have been a pretty impressive military leader in the British Army, our top soldier we call the field marshal. He is the field marshal of Saul's army. He's an impressive soldier. And he makes Saul's son um, king over all the tribes. And in fact, do you notice who he made this son, Ishbosheth, to be king over? It's not just some of the tribes. tribes. Verse 9, it lists them, but it finishes, he made him king over all Israel. 
all Israel. This is an act of defiance. This is an act of refusing to acknowledge God's king as God's king by setting up a rival. The name Ishbosheth means man of shame. It is a shameful thing to deny God's king. It is a shameful thing to try and thwart and challenge God's king. But humanity has always strived to deny God's rule over us, God's king over us, God's kingdom. They did it then. We do it now. And Abner should have known better. He really should. Because his master Saul, before he died, had said in 1 Samuel 24, verse 20, Saul had said, I know that you, David, will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Abner should have known better. But he won't accept David as God's king. Shame. Now, that resentment of Abner uh, about David had been growing over, over five years, in fact, if you do the math, because in the next verses, let's just read 10 and 11 again, Ishbosheth, son of Saul, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he reigned two years. The tribe of Judah, however, remained loyal to David. The length of time David was king in Hebron over Judah was seven years and six months. Now, Ishbosheth and David finished uh, their reigns, at least David's reign in Hebron, at roughly the same time. So if, if David was doing that for seven years and Ishbosheth for two years, that means there were five years, I'm good at maths, five years where David was, was, was um, king in Hebron before Abner mounts this, this opposition. Five years in which all we're told in the Bible about how David was ruling in those five years is what we read earlier in verses 1 to 7, that he ruled graciously. Five years of God's gracious king, and Abner says, I don't want him. I'm going to set up my own king. Abner rejected the king of grace. It's interesting, isn't it, in John's, first, uh, John's gospel in the first chapter, it says that Jesus came full of grace and truth, He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. The opposition. Thirdly, the skirmish, verses 12 to 16. Abner starts off the action in verse 12. Abner, son of Ner, and then he he acts. He heads south, in fact, towards Judah. Um, So Abner, son of Ner, verse 12, together with the men of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, left Mahanaim and went to Gibeon. Now, let's just look at the maps just so we're roughly clear. That's modern day uh, Israel and so on. Uh, just to remember, we're talking about real places, real time, real history we're dealing with here. That's modern day. If you just hone in, you can see now. Just go on to the next one. Uh, there you can see the Dead Sea at the bottom. Um, now, let's see what that was 3,000 years ago on the next one. And you can see there the places we're talking about. So you see on the right there, Mahanaim. Uh, do you see that in the middle? Uh, you see Gibeon on the left. Uh, so 
Abner and his men went from Mahanaim to, to Gibeon, and um, David's army, probably from Hebron, coming up from the south to meet them at Gibeon. Um, and at this point, we're introduced for the first time to a chap called Joab. Joab was the commander of David's army. So verse 13, Joab, son of Zeruiah, and David's men went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. In fact, the Hebrew there apparently also has the word together in it, so it should go uh, and went out and met them together at the pool of Gibeon. Um, Together. In other words, we've started our account with two camps, and here suddenly there's the word together. Um... In other words, will this be the end of two camps? Will this be the unification under one king? Verse 13, one group sat down on one side of the pool and one group on the other side. Then Abner said to Joab, let's have some of the young men get up and fight hand to hand in front of us. All right, let them do it, Joab said. So they stood up and were counted. Twelve men for Benjamin and Ishbosheth son of Saul, and 12 for David. And it's quite possible, probable, that there's 12 to represent the 12 tribes. Um, But at this point, it's 12 on 12. It's a skirmish. Um, Will they come together in this skirmish? Will they become one? Verse 16, then each man grabbed his opponent by the head and thrust, this is quite bloodthirst, isn't it? Thrust his dagger into his opponent's side and they fell down together. Uses that word again in the Hebrew. In other words, they met together, verse 13. There, they died together, verse 16, as each of the twelve simultaneously puts their dagger into their opponent, so all twenty-four die. Unity was not achieved that day. The two camps persisted. In fact, this skirmish turns into all-out war. uh, Four things just to consider the battle, verses 17 to 25. Uh, Verse 17, the battle that day was very fierce. And Abner and the Israelites were defeated by David's men. And then you get, we won't read it, but that account, this slightly unusual account of um, this chap called Azahel, um, fleet-footed like a gazelle, um, and he chases after Abner. He runs after him. In other words, he refuses uh, to let Abner go. He wants the fight to continue. Uh, he wants to kill Abner. Uh, he wants to kill this, this great military field marshal. Um, and in fact, the, the field marshal says, look, turn around. Don't follow me. I'm going to kill you if you've don't stop but, but the gazelle insists on running after him um, and the story as you may remember when it was read ends with him, him sadly being killed by the field marshal this is a reminder this whole account is a reminder that it's no easy thing to follow God's king you know these followers of, of King David it involves war it involves a fight it involves a battle. It is not easy following the king. Uh, it was in 1914, you may know this, the, um, the story of Ernest Shackleton, 
uh, is said to have put the following advert in the Times uh, um, uh, for his expedition to the, the um, Antarctic. Uh, Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return doubtful, honour and recognition in event of success. So, so it's going to be really hard, but it could be success. And indeed, there was success uh, for that trip. 27 men went with him for 20 months, and they had the most grueling conditions. Uh, it was called afterwards the most extraordinary navigational feat ever in nautical history. But they all survived and got the honour. And here in, in 2 Samuel 2, uh, David's followers, it's really tough. They were killed for it. And of course, for them, it was literal war. And that begs the question, and you may have thought about this when you read these Old Testament passages about uh, God's people being embroiled in actual physical war. Does that mean that you and I should do that as God's people today as Christians? You know, are we to take this passage and, uh, you know, if a terrorist was to suddenly come in the back door here tonight... You know, should we throw a hand grenade back? You know, is that, are the Crusades theologically the right thing to have done from a physical war point of view? Or what? Well, the answer for that as Christians is a resounding no. Uh, we are not to do that. These physical battles in the Old Testament are, as we said earlier, shadows they're shadows of what we are to do. Now, our, our battle is not against a physical enemy in this world. Now, the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Now our battle is a spiritual one. And does that mean still, though, we could take up actual physical firearms in this spiritual battle? Well, no, because Paul says in Ephesians 6, the sword of the Spirit is what? It's the Word of God. It's not a firearm. It's this book. It's the gospel. It's the word of God. It's the Bible. We are not involved in a war of guns, but a war of words. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, a very helpful couple of verses on this as well, 2 Corinthians 10 verses 4 and 5, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. Rather, we demolish arguments. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. In other words, our fight as Christians is a spiritual fight with spiritual words, not a physical fight with physical weapons. And we do all that in the context where our Lord and, and Master Jesus tells us to love our enemies. Anyway, back to 2 Samuel. We've got to the point of verse 26. 
where the war's been going on. They've chased um, Abner. Now the two camps, there's still two camps, are on two hills facing each other. Uh, what happens next? It's very tense because the, the tension's been mounting. You know, there's more and more war going on. The, 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 the leaders are pursuing each other. What's going to happen? Well, what happens is a truce. Phew. Uh, verse 26. Abner called out to Joab, Must the sword devour forever? Don't you realize that this will end in bitterness? How long before you order your men to stop pursuing their fellow Israelites? Remember when, Joab, when Abner says this, remember it was him that started it all off earlier in the day. Abner was the one who had challenged David's rule. Abner was the one who had headed south first to Gibeon. Abner, though, was the one who was losing. And that is why he'd fled. And that is why here, in verse 26, he cries out in desperation for it all to stop. How would Joab respond? There's good reason, according to the scholars, for translating verse 27, not as the NIV's done it. Apparently, it's complicated Hebrew. I wouldn't know. It's complicated Hebrew. Uh, But there's, there's good reason for translating it slightly different, namely, as God lives, if you had not spoken the people would have withdrawn this morning, each from following his, his brother. I'll say that again. Uh, as God lives, if you had not spoken, the people would have withdrawn this morning, each from following his brother. In other words, Abner, the only reason we are in this fight in the first place is because you call for it. We are only responding, Abner, to your attack. Don't blame us. And so in verse 28, Joab acts like King David, in fact, in a very gracious way. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the troops came to a halt. They no longer pursued Israel, nor did they fight any more. And in fact, at that point, Abner withdrew his men. Verse 29, all that night, Abner and his men marched through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, continued through the morning hour, and came to, oh, look, look where they come to, Mahanaim. Oh, they've ended up back where they started. But, oh, theologically, they've ended up back at two camps. This has been a chapter not of unity, but of division. I mean, they'd suffered defeat, um, verse 30 and 31. Then Joab stopped pursuing Abner and assembled the whole army. Besides Asherhel, 19 of David's men were found missing. Uh, So that's 20 in total. Um, uh, But David's men had killed 360 Benjamites who were with Abner. Um, so Abner's side, they, they have a crushing defeat, really. But they're not totally defeated. There's still a lot of guys who go back to where they started. Um, God's enemies, God's king's enemies have not been destroyed at this point. Uh, they're still there. 
So is there any hope? Is there any hope? Are we just left with two camps? Mahanaim. Is there any hope of the kingdom of God being fully established? Is there any hope that the people would be brought into unity under one king, one camp? And at the end of 2 Samuel 2, um, we just get a glimmer of hope. A glimmer of hope. Verse 32. But David, um, sorry, they took Asherhel and buried him in his father's tomb at Bethlehem. Then in his father's, t- uh, sorry, uh, then Joab and his men marched all night and arrived in Hebron by daybreak. Our attention is drawn right at the end of the chapter to Asahel. Do you remember that bit? We kind of skirted over it, really. I mean, that Weirdly, it has six verses of this gazelle-like man pursuing the military leader. It's right at the heart of the chapter. It takes center stage. A bit odd, really. A gazelle-like man chasing someone, being heart. Why? Why is that? Why has the writer of 2 Samuel done that? And the answer to that comes to us right at the end here in verse 32. Because of, what are they, because of what they then did with Asahel's body. They took it and they buried it. Where? Bethlehem. Bethlehem was approximately midway on the journey back from Gideon to Hebron. Importantly, it was David's hometown. More importantly, it reminds us of 1 Samuel 16, uh, where David was anointed by Samuel as God's king. Samuel had gone along, he'd he'd found the little uh, David, um, and he'd anointed him as the king. That's where the anointing happens. But where did that anointing happen in 1 Samuel 16? You've guessed it. Bethlehem. To be on the right side of history, you don't need to know the plans of Joab and Abner. Rather, you needed to know what happened in 1 Samuel 16 in Bethlehem to the king that God had anointed. You see, there was hope. And that hope rested in Bethlehem. And of course, as we know, Bethlehem would feature again in God's strange ways of establishing his kingdom. A millennium after the events we've just read about, a son of David was born in Bethlehem. Matthew 2, verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. He, he is the king that David was only a dim foreshadow. Jesus was the one who alone could bring in God's kingdom fully and finally. And as this week, we all struggle to to make sense of what is going on in our country, in the United Kingdom, or should we say the disunited kingdom, let's remind ourselves that all human kingdoms will be flawed 
But that only makes us look up to God, to his kingdom, to his kingdom that is united, to the one camp. You see, when we remember Bethlehem, well, we won't vote a vote of no confidence in the Lord, but a vote of total and complete confidence in God, in the God, who will establish forever his united kingdom of peace. Let's spend a moment or two in quiet, just reflecting on what the Lord has said to us, and then I'll pray. Lord, it's such a privilege to be able to read these Old Testament accounts of history, and thank you so much for anointing King David. But thank you all the more that he is but a shadow of uh, the greater king, your son, the Lord Jesus, the one who will indeed secure this uh, future, eternal, united kingdom under his rule. Thank you so much for him and the chance to meet tonight in his name and learn more of him and all the security and comfort he therefore brings us. In his name. Amen.